0: the offering while I give you a few announcements. There are a lot of things in the bulletin. We want to make sure you read them carefully. The inserts wouldn't be there if they didn't matter. So make sure you read them. If there's something that stands out to you, we'd love for you to take advantage of that. We also want to remind you that the first Sunday of the month is normally family experience. So 10 minutes after we're done in here, whenever that may be, you're invited to kindergarten to fifth grade with your family. As a family, come together and find out the value of the week, the value of the month, And the way that you can continue to do that as a family, not just as individuals, but as a family. On behalf of our district, the district superintendent, who happens to be my boss, told me, would you please thank your people for hosting district conference this week? Pastors from all over the area came together, and uh, you served them marvelously. A lot of you volunteered your time and energy for that. So he wanted to make sure to thank me and thank you. But I wanted to make sure that I thanked you as well for serving our district so, so well. Please make sure you read your bulletin carefully so you don't miss out on anything. If you're visiting us today and you've never been here before, you're wondering why in the world there's a guardrail up here, or a guide rail as it's now called, to give us direction in life obviously is the answer to that, but you may not know that it fits in the context of what we're doing in these weeks together and for the next few weeks on the Ten Commandments in the Old Testament from Exodus chapter 20. A long time ago, God said what your parents tell you on a regular basis, I know what's best for you. I know what you need. I know what can help you. I know what can guide you. I know what can direct you. And every time you say that to your children, hey, I'm doing this for your best. I'm doing this because I know what's best for you. They all say, thank you, mom. Thank you, dad. That is marvelous. May we take you to dinner because you just do know what's best for us. And we want to make sure that we follow all your directions, right? Y'all do that. And you've done that on a regular basis. Well, a long time ago, God said the same thing as our parent, as our Heavenly Father. I know what's best for you. I don't want you to try to wander through life on your own. I want to give you guidance and direction. And so when I realized that we're trying to talk about what gives us guidance, and what keeps us from falling over the edge of life, I thought a guardrail is a great way to remind us of that. That these things are written down for direction. They're written down to keep us on the right path. They're also written down so that we don't fall over the path and eventually destroy ourselves, destroy others and maybe our relationship with God. And you'll see how the rest of them flow out of that concept. We're in Exodus chapter 20, so if you have your Bibles, I'd love for you to turn there. It's going to be on the screen, but there are a lot of words that I want to make sure I highlight. So often when I talk to you about what we're speaking on, or especially if it's in the New Testament... I'll say things like the Apostle Paul said, or John said, or Peter said, and all of that is true because they're the authors of that particular section of Scripture. But all of it is the Word of God. We are absolutely convinced that what you have in your hands is the Word of God, the living, breathing Word of God, just as relevant as when it was written. So when I say things like Paul or John or Peter said, I do want you to know that all of it is what God says. And so when you look at this, it's very easy to see that. Look at how it begins. And God spoke these words. It wasn't Moses making up his mind as to what's going to best help them to keep on the right path. It wasn't some Old Testament author who was saying, look, let me give you some direction in life. I know you guys have been wandering for a long time and you're kind of lost. And you're probably led by a guy who's not going to be willing to stop and ask for directions. Right? You get that, right? Okay. Okay. So let me give you some direction. No, this is God says. This is what I want you to know. I'm the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt and out of the land of slavery. The whole New Testament essentially is that phrase where God says, this is who I am. This is where you were, dead in your trespasses and sins. You had no hope of anything. You had no hope of eternity. This is what I have done. I knew where you were. I knew what you needed. I brought you out of that and I offer you life. See how that's all summed up in that one little phrase, I am the Lord your God. I knew where you were. I brought you out of Egypt and out of the land of slavery. In light of that, your response is to have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven or on earth or on the earth beneath or the waters below. No other gods before me. You shall not bow down to them or worship them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. These verses and what you're going to hear out of Pastor Joe next Sunday morning really set the stage for all of the rest of the verses. They set the stage for life itself. God, the author, wants to make sure we clearly understand that there are rivals for his love, there are rivals for his affection. Kyle Eidelman, I think it's in your sermon notes, which, by the way, you can take out this morning. They're green, I think, or something along that line. I'm not sure all about color sometimes. Kyle Eidelman wrote a book called God's at War. He really does speak to what I'm saying here, that what God does in these few verses lays the foundation for all of life. What he does then is break down all the gods, all the gods in life that sometimes get in the way of our attention and our affection for God. It is really a well done, not all the Ten Commandments. It talks about these few verses, and if you have the opportunity to read it, he really does a wonderful job of trying to help his children understand how important what God said in Exodus chapter 20 is. In your sermon notes, Webster Dictionary defines idolatry is that which has no substance but can be seen, and idol, that which has no substance but can be seen. Now think about it for a moment if you know Scripture at all. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1. Faith is the evidence of what? Hope for the essence of what? What is not seen. So you see again, the idol is the opposite of what God says. Faith is the evidence of things hoped for, the assurance of what we do not see. It's not a man, I hope this is right. (laughs) Or I hope that God is right. I hope there really is a heaven. I hope it doesn't snow a lot this Christmas. It's not that kind of hope. It is an absolute certainty that what God says is I am the Lord your God. I brought you out of Egypt. I brought you to the land of slavery. I want you to know, even though you can't see me visibly, I am who I say I am. The opposite of what an idol is. The appeal of false gods is I can see them. We know about God. We know what he says. We know what he promises. We know all about heaven, but we've never really seen it. The appeal of a false god is I can see them. I know what to expect of them. I can control them. Why? Because I made them. Many have taken God and kind of redefined him to fit the image of what they want him to be, which is why it's called idolatry. Now, those created gods many times will promise success, support my cause, wink at my sin, and fill the holes in my life. Some have reduced God to nothing more than Santa Claus, who sees me when I'm sleeping and knows when I have been good. So, for goodness sake, hello, hello never said that to your kids? He sees you when you're sleeping. And some of us, we do that with God. He knows when you are in bad or good, so be good for goodness sake. Some of us reduce him to a policeman just waiting to nail us. Waiting to just pounce on us and give us the ticket of all tickets. Now, you know as well as I know, if you're driving down the road and you see flashing lights, the bottom of your soul just fell out, right? (laughs) At least it is for me. And I know... That if I get pulled over, number one, if I have to tell them who I am and what I do for a living, that's going to be an interesting conversation. So I'm, I'm, I mean, I'm giving them everything. If he comes to my window or she comes to my window, I'm giving them everything in the vehicle. Not just my license and registration. What else do you need? I'm so sorry. I, I shouldn't have done that or whatever it may have been. And sometimes if we're not careful, we see God that way. Just waiting for us to make a mistake. So we'll read this, thou shalt not, or I'm going to get you. It's not God at all. Some see him as an old man. He just won't hurt any. Oh, just boys will be boys. Girls will be girls. Go- don't worry about it. No big deal. Others see God as a force. Some see him as a higher power. We live in a culture that sees God whatever we want him to be. There's a book called The Trivialization of God. She says, he says things like this. Visit some churches on a Sunday morning and you can find a congregation who comfortably raise to a God who fits very nicely into their precise doctoral position, who supports their causes and conforms to their individual spiritual experience. Think about that for a moment. Those of us who do not want to converse with anyone, come in and out, be very staid, very proper, do our deal and go home, will go to a church that does that. Some of us who want to go to a church that has a lot of high energy and a lot of things going on that's maybe heavily charismatic or heavily Pentecostal, we'll go to that because that's what we want. That fits, fits our doctrinal position. Others of us want something in the middle where we kind of feel comfortable having conversations. We can talk. It's okay to be allowed in church or talk and have conversations in church, but don't get too carried away and don't be so proper, Right? And if we're not careful, sometimes we fit our understanding of God into what we think He should be or what we want in our spiritual experience. But in many of those churches, you won't find much awe or sense of mystery, he goes on to say. The only sweaty palms... (laughs) I love this one. The only sweaty palms are the preacher who wonders if anybody gets it, and the only shaky knees are the soloist about to sing. Others sit passively, seemingly unaffected by the fact that God Himself May show up. And Dillard said, Does anyone really fully understand the power of the God we worship so casually? Hopefully you will today and next Sunday morning. Now the phrase I want to examine this morning is the why he tells us not to worship other gods and the energy with which he says it. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. For I, the Lord your God. I don't want any other idols. I don't want any arrivals, any other competition. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. Now, That's a fascinating dimension of God that we don't always explore. When we think of jealousy, we think it's something we're not supposed to do or be. But God's jealousy is what drives the prohibition against idolatry because idolatry diminishes our understanding of God. Now, if you can, if you can, I get that. But if you can, for these next few moments, kind of put aside all your thoughts about the word jealous. And let me show you how it reveals something about the heart and character of God. By God's choice of that word, he reveals a lot about himself. You see, he says, Not only am I the one who created you, who delivered you, who redeemed you, who heals you, and provides for you, I am the God who loves you deeply. I am the God who passionately pursues you since the beginning of time, therein the jealousy. How many of you remember pursuing your mate? How many of you remember pursuing your mate? You remember what that was like? The moment I ran down this a couple of weeks ago, I remembered it clearly, as clearly as I know how. September, 47 years ago. The last week in September, as a matter of fact, my first date was September 29th, 47 years ago. Most of you weren't born 47 years ago, for all I know. And man, do I remember that. I remember what she looked like. I remember what she wore. I remember how excited I was that she actually said yes. I married her 10 months later just in case she changed her mind. <laughs> we were 19 years old. and my, Many parents that know that we were married at 19 and were also only dated nine, 10 months before we got married do not want me to do premarital counseling because they don't want their kids to get married until 27. So I understand that. But man, when I wrote that phrase down, I remembered every moment of it. God says not only have I created you, But before the foundation of the world, I have been pursuing you with a passion that I really want you to understand. And in my relentless pursuit of you, I sent my one and only son just to show you how much I love you. How much I care for you. How much I want you as my child. I've given you everything I have in this pursuit of you. That's why he reacts when we embrace another love. See, God, in a very real sense, is incapable of being dispassionate about us. He can't do it. Some people may be able to go to church and sit passively, but God says, I need you to know I can't do that. I'm incredibly passionate about you. I want you to clearly understand who I am. Now, some are okay with God as love, and we like God so loved the world. We say it all the time, we know the verse. I'll go to a football game, you may say, and put it on a placard, John three sixteen. So people will read it up and see it as the most searched-after verse in all of Google searches. And so we love that. We love that God so loved the world. And that's all true. We love reading that God is love. But when you understand this, you'll see that God loves us personally. Not only is he love. not only does he love the world, he loves you like you can't even imagine. You see, we're okay with God as king. I'm the servant. I love the king. I obey the rules. But it goes so much deeper than that. The word of God gives us an incredible array of metaphors that capture the various facets of our relationship with God. One is, he is the potter, I am the clay. We all sang that when we grew up in churches. That's a great way to see that relationship. And when I understand that he is the potter, I am the clay, then I say what? Mold me, make me after your will. We have all sung that at some point or the other. So I'll be whatever you want me to be. Some like God as the shepherd. And I like that as well. And I'm a sheep. So I'm going to follow him because I know he's going to lead me in the right path. I know he's going to care for me. I know he's going to protect me. I know he's going to provide for me. Some say he's the master and I'm the servant. Absolutely true. So I need to bend my knee and obey and do what he asked me to do. Wonderful metaphors. Absolutely biblical and right. But he's so much more than that. And not all Christians want to go to that deep dimension of God's love, and because of that, can miss some incredible aspects of his nature. You see, some like the master-servant relationship, because at least we're now in the house. But he wants it to go so much deeper than that, which is why he called us his children, and he is our Abba, which is a wonderfully deep dimension of our relationship with God, which, by the way, he wants us to get to. Think about this for a moment. If some of you were asked about your familial relationships, your family relationships, and talk about your father or your dad, what you identify them as, what you call them, and I want to be careful when I say this, not overly, but sometimes it sets the tone for that relationship. So if you call them father, which is wonderful, which is great, it's it's something and if you call them it's my dad it just takes it to another level right if you understand that fully and i'm not saying this for everybody but if i were to have a conversation with you and i hear you talking about your father or if i hear you talking about your dad i know there's a little bit of a different relationship in that what he wants us to go to is even another level and call him papa my abba so when the disciples came to jesus and said would you teach us how to pray they knew how to pray it's not like they had never prayed. but There was something about that relationship. They said, I want that. And he said, okay. Our Father, our Abba. And they were blown away by that. Now, you and I, probably a lot of us, I'm asking it at every membership class, how come we don't say the, the, our Father like I used to when I grew up? And I get that. I understand that. A lot of us grew up in churches where we said that every Sunday. And we say, our Father who is in heaven. Which is all true. But when Jesus said, my Abba, who is in heaven, there was something different about that. And that's the level of intimacy that God wants us to get to. Not to keep him out there somewhere, but deep, intimate, loving, and tender. But not everyone wants to walk that dimension with God. But for those who discover it, they'll never settle for less. I love Brendan Manning. Not everybody does, and I get that. Everybody has a different author. I love his writing, I love his work, I love his research, I love his heart and his passion and his pursuit of God in the midst of all of his own struggles. He wrote a book called Abba's Child that I gave out to a number of people down through the years, some of them who grew up in abusive situations and never really fully understood and embraced Abba. And when they did it, it literally changed everything in their life. That's the dimension he wants us to get to, not just our father, our dad, our dad. Our Abba, our Papa, which is what she texts me all the time, Papa. God continues to go deeper. He actually says, I no longer call you servants now, I call you friends. And you know as well as I do, sometimes you're closer with your friends than you are with your family. Right? We all have family relationships, but believe it or not, through the blood of Christ, I am closer with my church family down through the years and the last all these years of my life than sometimes I am with my own family. And there's something about that that God wants us to get to. But it even goes deeper than that. A metaphor that's the most amazing and deepest sometimes, and sometimes for some of us is the scariest, is when he says, we are the bride and he is the groom. Because that takes it to a whole nother level. John Eldridge in his book, The Sacred Romance, says this, The courtship that began with the honeymoon in the garden will culminate at the wedding feast of the Lamb. You know how much I love weddings. I talk about them all the time. A couple of weeks from now, it's funny that I dedicated here this morning. It's funny that a couple of weeks from now, I get to dedicate, I get to marry a girl to another guy that I dedicated as a baby. And now this cycle of life that I'm so old and been here for so long that I get to do that. I'm waiting for one of them to have a child that I get to dedicate of a girl that I dedicated and married. So if any of you, if I dedicated you or married you, you got to hurry this along because I'm waiting for that next step. All right, And it's a wonderful relationship and all of that. And I love the marriage ceremony and the celebration. I love that groom's face when he just lights up like a Christmas tree. You've heard me say that a hundred times. And then there's that celebration of the feast. And we've all talked about, and you've heard me talk about Revelation 3.20. Behold, I stand at the door and knock, and I invite you in. And and we use that as an evangelical tool, an evangelistic tool, and it's, it's right to do that. But I had a friend who was probably one of the most brilliant men I've ever said. He said, to be honest with you, I think it's the wedding celebration. He said, we've gone to prepare the bridal chamber, and I'm at the door, and I want to come in, and that's what they did in Jewish Old Testament days, and New Testament days as well, and and I want to come in, and, and I want to have this relationship that is so deep, and so wonderful, and so tender. He talks about it in Revelation 20, he actually gives us the end of that in 19 and 20, and He says this in Revelation 19. Got to rejoice and be glad and give him glory for the wedding of the Lamb has come and the bride has made herself ready. Fine linen, bright and clean, given to her to wear. Fine linen that stands for the righteous acts of God's holy people. And the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those, which by the way, you're all invited. Blessed are those who were invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. God says, I will delight in you. As the bridegroom rejoices over his bride, so I will rejoice over you. And if you've been to a wedding and you watch the bride and the groom interact, you watch their faces light up, you watch the joy that goes with that, you get a sense of what he's referring to in his context when he says, I don't want to keep you out there. I don't want to keep you here. I want to keep taking it to a deeper level. So let me give you this one. I am the groom and you're the bride. And man. Paul tells us that God had a plan in mind since the beginning of the world in your sermon notes, all with a desire that you and I for all of eternity will be his bride. And when we fully understand and experience that dimension of God's love, it will take us to a deeper level than we ever imagined, a place that God wants us to go to. And in your notes, it is a place of love, tenderness, intimacy, and passion. you got to face this. God is crazy about you. God is crazy about us. He loves us that much. And to be honest with you, not all of us fully grasp that. And maybe, sadly, have never really heard that. That's why he wants no other loves before him, and he's jealous when you and I do. See, we may be passive about God, but he is not passive towards us. And because of that, you can understand how broken-hearted God was when Adam and Eve were seduced by God's enemy, Satan, and why he's so brokenhearted when we fall into the same trap. God could have easily given up on us. He didn't. Instead, he gave his life and the life of his very own son to bring us back into the depth of that love. God's first commands are not the pointing finger, thou shalt not. They're written from a heart of love. No other loves. Don't worship them which speaks of love or bow down what speaks of devotion. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. And when you embrace another and broken heart God doesn't want to be replaced. No husband wants to be replaced by the kids or the grandkids. Right? We want to be first. That's how it should be. Jesus first, my spouse second, my children first, and then a list comes underneath that. My grandkids and the list is endless underneath that. No wife ever wants to be replaced with a hobby. Neither does God. You see, in your sermon notes, we're more than clay that complies, more than servants that obey, more than children who belong, more than friends who agree. God's desire is love, intimacy, to be known and fully known. I am my beloved's, and my beloved's is mine. And we need to decide, are we ready for that? Because that is exactly where he wants to take us. Not everyone gets that. Not everyone, even on a human level, can do that, let alone with God. But that is exactly what his desire is. So we can't hold him at a distance because he'll want more than a date on the weekend. If God has been pursuing me since the beginning of the foundation of the world and loves me that much, and he has and he does, then he wants more than just to see me on Sunday. See you in church, God? Hey, I'll pick you up along the way. We'll have a conversation while we get there. He may want more than a walk in a park and a peck on a cheek, and for many of us, that's scary. But anything less will keep us from being everything we were intended to be in our relationship with God. And nowhere has God demonstrated his love for us and his relentless pursuit of us any more than on the cross. And when I fully understand and receive his grace and forgiveness, I will, as we sang this morning, run to him and receive that. News articles all over the planet about everything. I just was interested and intrigued this week when I saw one that maybe you've probably seen. She's a police officer from Dallas who shot an individual and he died. And she received a 10-year sentence for that. What was intriguing is the response of the brother of the young man who passed away. If you've never seen it, you have to go back and look at the longer clip of that because it will literally blow your mind. And it is, again, a reminder. I know a ton of us carry weapons all the time, but I'm telling you, you better be very sure what you're doing when you pull that weapon out because it will change everybody's life forever. And I'm one of those guys, so it's just my opportunity to remind you of that. When the trial is over in so many different cases, the family has a response or can have a response to the individual. And so the brother of the man who was murdered shared the love of Jesus with Amber. What was intriguing is her response to that. Just watch a few seconds of it. Can, can I give her a hug, please? Compassion, grace. Yes. Whatever you call it, in a hushed courtroom in Texas tonight, we witnessed it. 18-year-old Brant Jean forgiving Amber Geiger, his brother's killer. If you truly are sorry, I know I can speak for myself. I I forgive you. I know if you go to God and ask him, he will forgive you. Now, (laughs) fascinating about that is his response. I mean, I'm not sure if any of us can do that. And out of the love of Jesus and because of what we know about Christ, we ought to be able to offer that kind of forgiveness. It's one thing to offer forgiveness. What you saw in that clip was what it's like to receive forgiveness. Her life has changed forever and will be changed forever. But what you see in that is just a glimpse, just a visual of what it's like to receive forgiveness. And when she received forgiveness, she ran into his heart and embraced that. Which when we really understand what forgiveness and grace we've received from the God of the universe, it ought to make us run into his arms and embrace him with love and tenderness. I can't believe that you did this for me. I want you to see why I honestly believe God laid these commandments out the way he did and why he starts with these phrases and what you'll hear next Sunday morning. Because out of our understanding of that relationship, everything else will flow. One of the speakers this week put it all together for me in a context. He said, for decades, churches, if not centuries, started with people's behavior so that they would feel comfortable going to church with people who behaved well. And maybe after they became believers or whatever they understood about that, they'll understand that they need to do these things because we know, and it's true, that belief will determine behavior. And so we are all about behavior, about disciplines and doctrine and great information about God, which are wonderful things. Please do not misunderstand me. But what God knew thousands of years ago, if we realize and sense the awe and wonder of who God is and recognize how deeply he loves us, our life and behavior will naturally flow as an outcome of that relationship and not as a way of proving that we have a relationship with God. You get that? I love it when we spend time after the service giving God's praise. We're going to do that for a moment this morning. I love it when we flip everything around and we have the message and then just spend time in praise and adoration. I really, really do. But one of the reasons that I believe we sing and praise first is that once I catch a glimpse of the wonder and awe of who God is and His love for us, then I am more and better prepared to respond to the challenge of His Word. You see that? Us 20th century and 21st century pastors, we think we know better than all the other people down through the ages. But I wonder if we didn't get it, and now we're finally figuring it out. Because to be honest with you, I really believe beyond a shadow of a doubt. That is exactly why we sing and praise. The unfortunate thing is when all churches can't show you or share with you or let you see or experience the wonder and awe of God. Which is why I love what we do on Sunday morning. Which I love what they do, and I love what this man. Because every single Sunday, you and I have the opportunity just to experience for a few moments the wonder and awe of the God of the universe. And maybe you do that everywhere you go, up in the tree stand, on the golf course. You can tell me that. I don't know if I believe it, but I get that. But I'm telling you, every time we have an opportunity to gather into the wonder and awe of the delight of God, and I see that and experience that, out of that will become my behavior. And then I am more prepared and better prepared to hear the challenges of his word. I honestly think that is exactly why we do it that way. And what I love about God and his design is is verse 8. So remember the Sabbath day. Put a hedge around it. Put a guard around it. Don't let anything take that away. Every week, stop of all the crazy activity of your life and collectively stand in the God, the God who is and was and will always be and behold his wonder and his beauty. God says, I've got a gift for you, a day to look forward to, a day to enjoy, a day to stop and reflect, to recharge. So I'm just asking you, I'm telling you, I'm almost commanding you, do it every time, do it every week. Put a hedge around it. Don't let anything take that away. Because when you fully understand and embrace what a gift it is, then you'll not give it back. Would you have ever given your gift back in that little one he just gave you? Not a bit. And you'll never give that because it's a wonderful opportunity to stand in his presence. Two weeks from now, I'll share the essence of that. Because in between, you've got to have verse 7. And Joe's going to do an incredible job next week to help us fully understand why not to misuse his name and what it means and why it's so important in the context of the flow of these verses and why God so wonderfully put them together the way he did. God, as we stand and sing, as we embrace your love and grace, help us to just run into your arms and receive your love. Enjoy the relationship to the fullest and the depth of what it has always been designed.